Welcome to today's Plugged In Podcast. My name is Brian Deppish, and I'm an energy and environment reporter at the Washington Examiner. I'm delighted to be here this week with host Neil Chatterjee, as well as Jamil Jaffer, the founder and executive director of the National Security Initiative at George Mason University. Today, we're going to be talking about threats to U.S. critical infrastructure, including energy, amid Russia's ongoing war in Ukraine. Russia, as we know, has a very long history of asymmetric warfare, including activity uh, in the U.S. electric grid for years. We're also going to discuss the different types of cyber attacks, as well as what our own red line is in this space and what our ability is to retaliate. I really can't imagine a better duo to be here with today to do this really interesting kind of complex nexus uh, of cybersecurity and energy security topics, um, as well as broader uh, the broader question of who in the federal government is best suited to respond to them. Well, Brianne, thank you for uh, for joining the Plugged In podcast. It is so great to have a co-host once again. And uh, I've been enjoying, have been enjoying doing these by myself, but uh, it always goes much better with a co-host. And uh, while I miss my buddy, Josh Siegel, really looking forward to recording these with you going forward. And what a great way uh, to start off this, uh, this new duo uh, with a fantastic guest. Yeah, absolutely. So, Jamil, you've worked really closely uh, in the cyber defense international policy space for the last two decades, uh, really at DOJ, Congress, the White House. Uh, I'm really hard pressed, you know, going through your biography uh, to see, to think of an area where your work hasn't touched in. So I guess uh, I wanted to give you an opportunity to first walk us through your background a little bit um, and maybe touch on some of the main themes you think we're seeing in this space. Yeah, sure. Well, Brianne and Neil, thanks so much for having me. What a what a great opportunity to be here for your first podcast together. I'm thrilled to be on uh, on the podcast, and uh, I'll just very quickly jog through my background. The main thing you need to know about me from a cyber perspective is that I grew up, you know, coding with computers from from a young age. Right, my first computer was a Tandy TRS-80 color computer with 4K of onboard RAM. Paving went through college doing uh, computer support and running 10 base C cable and doing fiber punch down blocks and all this sort of stuff. And then when I got to D.C. after law school and the like, um, I had a chance to work on cyber policy. I was at the Justice Department, uh, both the Office of Legal Policy and the National Security Division, and the Bush White House, where I worked on the President's Comprehensive National Cybersecurity Initiative. Um, and then at the House Intelligence Committee, um, where I served under Chairman Mike Rogers and, and drafted uh, the first cyber information sharing bill uh, that was ultimately enacted into law in 2015, um, after we did the first version back in 2011. Um, also served in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And then for the last six and a half years, I worked for General Keith Alexander, the former director of NSA, the founding commander of U.S. Cyber Command, at his startup, Ironet Cybersecurity, that just went public uh, back in August of last year. Uh, I left the company in December, although I'm still on the advisory board. Um, and now I'm thinking about what I might do with the rest of my life as I run NSI, which I've been running for a little while um, as sort of my, as my co-CEO, I like to call it my side hustle. Um, it was like I was selling, you know, watches out of my jacket pocket on a New York sidewalk. Um, but now it's my primary house, so at least for, for a little while until I figure out what I want to do when I grow up. So, you know, I'm thinking about some startup ideas and, you know, maybe some VC. Who, we'll see. We'll see what happens. We'll see what the world brings. Um, but look, uh, you, you'd ask about the cyber domain. And look, I mean, you all know all about the space a lot more uh, than I do. Um, but, you know, it's a, it's a contentious environment right now, right? The U.S. has capabilities um, on the offensive side. We created U.S. Cyber Command a few years back. Um, we have defensive needs. Um, our critical infrastructure is under constant threat, um, not just from nation states, although primarily from nation states, states like Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, 
uh, but also uh, criminal gangs that are engaged in ransomware attacks, some which have significant ties to nation states, um, some of which are operating just for their own pocketbook and oftentimes in combination. Um, and so there's a lot of threats out there. Um, our critical infrastructure is being looked at by nation states. As you mentioned, Russia has uh, actively sought to infiltrate our critical infrastructure in order to get capabilities in place, both to collect intelligence, but also to take action if and when uh, the necessity arises. So there's a lot going on in this domain, a lot of need for public-private collaboration. We hear about that all the time. What does that mean in practice? That's a really important question. So let me just stop there and hand it back to you. Well, can you, just for a minute, this is an energy-focused podcast, and you mentioned ransomware attacks. We had a big one with the Colonial Pipeline hack. Can you talk a little bit about what the interplay might have been between that incident and an adverse nation state? You know, yeah. were the Russians watching to see what role, you know, what disruptive impact that had in the U.S.? Were these ransomware attackers in any way, in your mind, tied to a particular nation state? And how, how vulnerable is our energy infrastructure to either a ransomware attack or a nation state attack? Yeah, look, I think the energy industry has done a great job of really hardening their systems. Probably either number one in terms of industries or number two to the financial sector, energy has really gone and leaned forward when it comes to the cyber defense. That being said, as you point out, we did have a big incident uh, just about a, you know, about a year, year and a half ago um, with the Colonial Pipeline. Uh, it was a ransomware group operating out of Eastern Europe called Our Evil. Uh, I think the, the current betting, and from the people that I talk to in the government and the intelligence community, the current betting is, that our evil is, is highly Russian-influenced, if not Russian government-directed, right? They definitely have some influence with the Russian government. Look, the reality is nothing happens in Vladimir Putin's Russia or the parts of Eastern Europe that he has significant influence over without him or his cronies knowing and giving a sort of, you know, nod to. Oftentimes, these Russian hacking groups, uh, Neil, are government hackers who are doing it on the nights and weekends, partly for their own pocketbook, partly to achieve nation-state objectives. It's hard to disaggregate in Russia, between what's criminal and what's state, in part because the state is frankly criminal and the criminals are frankly state. And so that's one of the challenges. Interestingly, Neil, we see a similar trend now happening in China, right? You've seen some recent Justice Department indictments talking about the combination of, uh, of public uh, activity, nation's activity, and private criminal activity and the correlation between the two. So look, the, the question of how, how vulnerable our grid or our energy sector is, they're vulnerable the way that a lot of our sectors are, which is they've taken a significant amount of effort uh, to harden themselves, particularly the large companies. Um, but you can never do enough because the reality is no one company standing alone um, and maybe even no one sector standing together can effectively defend against a committed nation state who has virtually unlimited human resources, virtually unlimited financial resources, and, you know, and, and time, you know, time and money to burn. And so I think the key to energy sector defense, as it is true in a lot of critical infrastructures, is industry coming together, companies with other companies, industry and government working together, and frankly, multiple industries coming together alongside our allies. And so that's a lot of coming together we're talking about. And I don't mean to suggest that it's, it's kumbaya when it comes to cybersecurity. It isn't. But what we do need, and, you know, the, the, the Cybersecurity Solarium Commission, which, which released its report uh, right at the beginning of the pandemic, called for this. We need a fundamental paradigm shift when it comes to cyber defense. We can't fight individually against the nations that are coming after us collectively. We got to figure out how to do collective defense. That's a hard thing when the private sector owns and operates the vast majority of critical infrastructure in this country and a lot of our allied countries too. Absolutely. Uh, and that kind of brings me to another point that I really wanted to hit on. It's that, uh, Jamil, you and I have talked about this at length before, but 
uh, just the agency role here uh, within the federal government. You know, we know CISA just gained agency. That's DHS's cyber agency. They just gained agency status not too long ago. Um, and there was sort of this kind of uh, sharp elbowed fight for who does what in cyber. Now that we're kind of seeing a whole of government uh, working together, a more collaborative approach, I guess. But since they are so new relative to cyber, um, and they're actually the agency that's tasked with overseeing these 16 areas of critical infrastructure, infrastructure. Are they seen in this space as uh, really up to the challenge? And to what extent, you know, what reputational progress have they maybe gained in the last several years? Uh, and how, what have you heard from the private sector about them stepping up in this space? Yeah, look, a, a lot of people in the private sector have been long skeptical of DHS being capable of operating the space. So let's just be honest, um, you know, um, and it's not, it's not something relative to CISA, it's DHS writ large. DHS is a conglomeration of a lot of different agencies. Um, I think there's a lot of people who think the DHS has been a challenge, right? It, it, it has a bureaucratic structure that, that grabs a lot of authority, doesn't do a lot of it particularly well, and cyber um, has been an area where that's been a challenge for them. Now, that being said, under their last two leaders, so their current leader, Jen Easterly, who's a good friend, Chris Krebs, who's also a good friend, there's actually been significant change. I think actually a lot of a gain of credibility with the private sector. Um, you know, there, there are a lot of criticisms being made of the Biden administration. I can tell you, though, on the cyber front, they have really pulled together an amazing team, right? Starting at NSA with Rob Joyce and, and General Paul Nakasone, U.S. Cyber Command, at the White House with Chris Inglis and Ann Neubarger, at DHS CISA with Jen Easterly. I mean, you cannot really find a better cyber team of experts that have, have, have government experience, industry experience, that really understand the need to collaborate and work together. Um, and so... In a lot of ways, I think you're seeing a, a renaissance in government cyber and a real gaining of trust uh, between the inner industry and the private sector. It's got to go both ways, right? Government's got to trust that industry can take in highly classified information and operationalize it. Industry's got to believe the government's going to do something for industry, not just regulate them. You know, there have been, there are hiccups here and there, right? SISA advocated strongly for a, for a mandatory information sharing regime that was now enacted in the law just in the last few, become law in the just last few weeks. Um, there's skepticism in industry about whether that'll be valuable. You know, my instinct as a recovering lawyer um, is to say, look, anytime you re require somebody to do something about regulation, they're going to call their lawyers. Their lawyer's going to slow them down and tell you to tell them to share as little information as possible unless you give them regulatory liability protection, which they didn't do. And so, you know, there's some debates. But at the end of the day, I think CISA is on a good trend. The government writ large is on a good trend. Now the question is, can we see it actually come together and can we really effectuate collective defense? Yeah, I was really impressed with CISA during my tenure at uh, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Uh, you know, Chris Krebs was most famously known for being attacked by President Trump uh, for his work on election security. But he was a critical player when it came to protecting our nation's uh, infrastructure. And I got to know him through the uh, Electric Subsector Coordinating Council, right. which was really an amazingly well-hewn group that brought together uh, DHS, DOE, these various agencies, as well as the private sector. Can you talk a little bit about how important that type of cooperation and collaboration is? One of the things I found so interesting is you have these huge economic sectors of the U.S. economy, energy, telecom, financial services. Not only do the leaders in those sectors not know each other's processes, they don't know each other's personalities. Like, you know, uh, they're just saying hello for the first time. Our grid gets attacked. We can't get it up without telecom. Telecom can't function without power. Uh, how important is this kind of government and industry cooperation? You know, Neil, I think you hit exactly right on it. It is, it is 
hugely critical, right? It's the cross-industry collaboration that you just talked about, the, the uh, industry-government collaboration, one industry with the government and multiple industries with the government. Um, and look, you know, we, we've worked on it. We've had these sector coordinating councils for a while. They do a great job convening people, bring them together, having conversations, figure out how to work together, ga- you know, gaming out some of these things. They can be very successful. Some are better than others, to be honest with you, right? Just like in industry, some are better than others. The, some of those vulnerable industries, frankly, have the best relationship with one another and with the government. So, so financial sector, energy, telecom, these are all industries that actually have done a really good job in their coordinating councils, working together with one another and working with, with the government, right? Improvements can always be made. There's still a need to do more. And I really laud Jen Easterly for creating this new uh, joint cyber defense collaborative, the JCDC, right? In a lot of ways, I think that is this effort to bring together all the pieces of government that need to do their part, right? All the pieces of industry that need to, do, need to do their part, right? Whether that'll be successful or not. And, you know, you, you got this great idea behind, with uh, with Chris Singlis at, at, at the National Cyber Director saying, I'm like the coach and Jen's the quarterback, right? If this were a football team, right? And so I really like that sort of dynamic they're talking about, right? But then, of course, the question is, what about FBI? What about Secret Service? What about NSA? What about Cyber Command, right? What happens to the nation state? Whose job is it to defend, right? You know, one of the hardest questions uh, that I think we, we, we at some point we got to talk about, right, is whose job is it to defend the nation when a nation state comes after us? Because in the normal run of the course, right, you know, you think about a Russian bomber coming over the horizon. And I know everyone says, well, cyber's not like the air and land sea domains. It's a special new fifth domain. But the reality is when a Russian bomber comes over and hits us, nobody thinks, oh, Walmart, why didn't you have sorts of air missiles on the roof of your warehouse? Everyone's like, of course, it's not your job. That's the government. But in cyber, nobody thinks it's a government job to defend against the, the, the cyber missile. They think Walmart, you know, JP Morgan, Citibank, and by the way, all the mom and pop businesses, all the small businesses that are the heart and engine of the American economy. We all know if JP Morgan and, and Citibank can't do it or do it effectively at the end of the day, how, how are these small businesses going to do it? It's, it's, just, it's crazy. And so we've got to figure out how to get that new concert going. And what you're describing, Neil, that idea of industry, government coming together, these coordinating councils. It is critical to our national cyber defense. And it's also critical from an international standpoint. You know, we've seen NATO uh, and Jake Sullivan's echoed this in recent days. You know, cyber at a certain at a certain point um, is considered an act of war or, you know, an act of terrorism. Mm. And it just is a matter of uh, deciding what constitutes really that red line, which is another topic that I wanted to hit on, especially today. Um, you know, we saw we saw attacks last year on JBS, on Colonial Pipeline, and there were some suggestions that maybe the scale and the scope of attack warranted, you know, that kind of the level of um, met that level. And, you know, obviously the White House did not agree. Um, and Jake Sullivan fielded a few questions in last week's press briefing, um, and he distinguished between the two types of main cyber attacks we see from Russia. One is the disruptive, destructive attacks, which are malware specific. You know, they're uh, designed to, I think, kind of solicit a certain result versus attacks that are more, um, it's just more of a matter of intel gathering. You know, you're lurking in their network. And from my limited vantage point and what sources have told me is that we kind of both have that presence, right? Both the US end and the Russian end. Like we know that they're there and they know what that we we are there to an extent as well. Um, and so at what point does that uh, does that one type of intel gathering hack change into, you know, what what is that red line for us? And um, I guess my follow up question would be what kind of sticks, you know, by carrot stick method do we have to respond? 
You know, Brian, it's, it's a great question. And actually, I'm not sure the government even knows the answer to that question, right? Uh, the way I like to think about it is cyber attacks on one hand, that's that destructive stuff that you're talking about, and cyber hacks on the other, where they're just trying to steal data, gather intelligence and the like. You know, we often use the term those cyber attack in all the newspapers, all the publications to mean all those things, right? So we overuse the word attack, and then we're surprised we don't respond. Now, look, the, everyone knows they're hacking us, we're hacking them, that's the business, you know, whatever, right? Nobody, nobody's fighting about that, right? Now, look, if a hack gets to the point where you can deliver a capability through it that's problematic, right, then it's an access point. Oftentimes, that's the case. It's an access point for a potential attack. So the question is, now how do you distinguish between a hack and an attack? Maybe it's the delivery of the weapon. Okay, so you deliver the weapon. How big an explosion do you need for you to say, okay, I'm going to be able to respond. I have, a, I, have a, I have a right of self-defense under international law, right? Oftentimes people say, well, if it has a physical type effect, maybe that's the line, right? Maybe if it's, it has a significant destructive effect, if it's on critical infrastructure, maybe that's the line, right? But we don't, we don't know. I don't think the U.S. government doesn't know what our red line is. And to be sure, we have not made clear to our adversaries what our red line is. How do we know this? Well, we've seen attacks on critical infrastructure, Colonial Pipeline, JBS in the food sector. We've seen destructive attacks against the private sector, Sony Corporation, right? We've seen destructive attacks at, at back in 2015, Las Vegas Sands Corporation, right? So we've seen destructive attacks for a long time. We've seen attacks that cause critical infrastructure to have significant problems over time. We've never effectively responded, at least not publicly. So if we're going to deter, right, we need to think about what is, what, how does deterrence work and what does the national response look like? Well, for deterrence to work, the enemy has to know what's going to cause you to respond, right? What your capabilities respond look like, what your response might look like. Um, and then you've got to do it publicly, right? When it happens, when your line is crossed, you got to hit back and you got to do it in public so everyone else sees it. The problem in the cyber domain is we don't talk about capabilities because they all grew up in the intel community. So we can't talk about what we have and we don't have. We almost never talk about our response in cyber the cyber domain, even though we know we've done it. We, you hear, oh, well, we did something. We don't know what it is. Then it leaks out a few weeks later in the media, right? Like, it's crazy, right? And and on top of all this, people tend to have this sense of, like, if you get hit in the cyber domain, you got to respond to the cyber domain. Well, of course, that's not true either, right? So at some level, if we're going to be effective at deterrence, in my view, the reason we haven't been effective at deterrence is we don't talk about red lines. We don't talk about capabilities. We don't talk about consequences. And to the extent we do talk about any of those, we rarely have ever deliver in a public way that would actually deter. And so it's no surprise. It's like having kids, right? If you tell your kids, if you don't tell your kids what's going to get them smacked and you don't eventually smack them, again, I don't mean you got to hit your kids, right? Whatever, you know, the the the, the nice, you know, modern day punishment you version of smacking. Oh, Bill Smith on us, Jamil. Yeah, you know, exactly. They're fine. Fair enough. You know, take them <laughs> offline, whatever. Take their, yeah, you know, make them make, not use their iPads, whatever the thing is that you do at your house, right? But if you don't punish your children, right, they're going to test your boundaries. They're going to keep testing and testing until you punish them, right? It's the same with nation states. If you don't tell what your boundaries are, you don't enforce the boundaries, they'll test them. We've seen that in Ukraine. We've seen that with Vladimir Putin. We've seen it with China. We've seen it with Iran, North Korea. It's no surprise we're being tested in this domain. We aren't deterring effectively because we aren't engaging in classic deterrence. Interesting. And that does I, that, that does actually bring me back to uh, this was actually one of uh, Russia's first uh, incursions into Ukraine. They hacked their energy sector, you know, famously tw starting in what, 2015, 2016, mm -hmm. just triggered a lot of blackouts. Uh, Neil's podcast, I think it was either last week, week before last, 
uh, former FERC chairman, they spoke about, all of, you know, our energy grid's vulnerabilities and how easy it is to actually take us offline. And um, as I mentioned previously, we know that Russia does have the ability, you know, as of I think the uh, threat assessment in 2019 warned that they had the ability to really hurt us in this space. So I don't know, Neil, what any anything does this bring any fresh questions to your mind or? Yeah, I mean, I just wonder, you know, from our perspective, what does government need to be doing on the defensive side? You know, one of the things that uh, I dealt with when I was at FERC working in coordination with NERC was the development of standards. But I was never a big proponent of standards because to me, standards were the floor, not the ceiling. And, uh, you know, uh, I actually had uh, a witness, uh, I believe from Microsoft at one of our technical conferences looking at um, enhanced standards who sort of said, hey, look, you guys hit me with a violation you know, that's all well and good. But the reality is, if my system is subject to an attack, the, the diminution in my share price will exponentially exceed whatever measly, you know, violation SIP fine you can give me. You know, how do we strike that right balance between standards or incentives? Is that really the approach that we ought to be taking? Deterrence, you covered at length as to why it would be effective. But in the absence of us doing sufficient deterrence, uh, what else can we be doing to to protect ourselves? Yeah, Neil, it's, it's a great question, a great point that both Bri you and Brianna made, which is I, I do believe that there's a role for government to play in this space. Um, and, and standard setting is one great way to start, but I think incentives are critical, right? We know today, everyone always bemoans how little, uh, how little knowledge there is in industry about cybersecurity, or that you need a cyber a person on your board, on your board of directors, right? Somebody who knows cybersecurity. You got to elevate your CISO to report directly to the CEO. Got to give them a bigger budget, right? All those things, no doubt, right? But the question becomes, you know, why do we still see this gap in cybersecurity, even at the ba most basic level? I think incentives, tax incentives, uh, can be very powerful. Uh, government. Uh, government provision of, of, of basic capabilities can be helpful, right? But at the end of the day, it's going to be on industry to do it. And I do think, Neil, that the effect on, on the share price of a company when they're hit with a major attack, particularly in critical infrastructure, is probably going to outstrip anything the government could do, right? So then the question becomes, when is a stick appropriate from the government, right? And what should that stick look like, right? And I think the answer to that has got to be, look, we got to, you know, you typically think of, of government regulatory sticks when there's a market failure, right? And people say, well, it's clearly the market failure because we wouldn't be getting hit with all these cyber attacks if uh, we didn't have market failure. But the fact of the matter is that we know today, putting aside a large scale market failure, there's an existing information failure. We know the government has more information than it shares with the industry. We know industry has a tremendous amount of information about threats it sees that the government never gets. So how you can share that information and then incentivize real cyber defense, and then you see how it plays out. You, there might very well be places where there is need for regulation and maybe strict regulation, right? But but today we're regulating in the dark. So NERC SIP is a great example. Their collaborative efforts working with FERC and NERC to create standards that industry can utilize and effectuate. That's a great example of industry and government working together well on a set of uh, set of rules. Eventually regulation is necessary. If it is necessary, that's a good model for how to develop the right kind of smart regulation. The other challenge to be candid with you, and I think Neil, you, you get this more than a lot of people do, right? regulations when it comes to cyber domain can be really hard to get right. And government is bad at, at moving regulations quickly, right? Government can do regulations, they can do it well, but it can't, it can't move at the speed that cyber threats are changing. And so the question then becomes, how do you, how do 
do you solve for that? And that's another tough question that industry government got to work more closely together. The classic regulatory model in this space will not work. It's just not fast enough. It's not effective enough. So something more collaborative like NERC SIP is a really good, good way to go if we're going to go down that road. That's a really great point. One question um, that I wanted to kind of pose to you both is, I think we're seeing that, uh, you know, out of the U.S. intelligence community and various assessments that Putin's back is really against the wall here. You know, there are reports that he's been fundamentally misled by his advisors, that he, you know, he's feeling the squeeze of these sanctions to a certain extent. Uh, There are all these various kind of things that we're we're throwing at him. And, uh, you know, I don't think his war is quite succeeding um, the way that he wanted it to. Uh, So his back's against the wall. He's he's more or less broke. And since he's feeling the squeeze, do you think an attack on U.S. critical infrastructure, most specifically energy, where I think they have uh, the most ability to cause damage? Do you think this attack is more likely? you know, because he's more like from a more desperate, more caged Putin. Do you think this is more likely? Yeah, I, I think Putin's tactics are twofold when it comes to how to escalate this war. And I think he is going to escalate. He's, I don't I don't buy this. Oh, he's just, he's going to try and negotiate his way out of this thing. He doesn't have enough wins on the board to get a negotiation that looks like a win for him. He's under a lot of pressure at home, having failed, as you point out correctly, uh, in his strategy to, to win this war quickly and, 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 and essentially install a public government in Ukraine. And so he's on his ba- on his heels. So his response is going to be twofold. One, go much more aggressively after civilians in Ukraine itself. That's a disaster in terms of humanitarian uh, needs. And it's going, to, it's going to demonstrate the failure, our failure to effectively deter him. Second, I think the cyber attacks in Ukraine, outside of Ukraine, are very much in the cards. Why? Because he doesn't expect us to respond to the cyber domain, right? He's seen it over and over again. He's hit us time and time again, either through proxies or directly. We haven't effectively responded. He thinks he can get away with it. So he might try there. I think the other set of things he might do, you know, nuclear chem bio or the like are much more aggressive escalations. And I think he's more likely to come at us in these two domains first than he is in these other spaces. Now, that being said, I think he also understands that a major catastrophic style attack on our energy grid, our financial sector or the like will force the U.S. to respond. He doesn't want to war with, with him, with us any more than we want with him. He's going to be cautious. He's going to deliver it, but he'll try to get points on the board in a way that the world can see and if we don't respond effectively and tell them up front, look, you cross these lines, there's going to be a problem. And it can't just be more economic sanctions because that does not deter Vladimir Putin. Right. We got to figure that out. The president was very clear with him about cyber attacks. When he saw him, he said, these 16 criminal infrastructures are off limit, right? Off limits. What happens when he starts hitting with them? Are we really going to go back militarily, either in the cyber domain or elsewhere? With the president said we're taking essentially the military off the table other than an attack on a NATO member? Hard to know. I think Vladimir Putin thinks no, which makes him more aggressive, more likely to be more aggressive. I worry about that. That's really heavy stuff. And it feels very awkward to pivot from this subject. But for those folks who listen to the Public Dean podcast, they know we, we try to mix in a little bit of substance with a little bit of fun, some lightness, hard to be light in the face of this topic. That said, you brought so much uh, energy to this podcast today. Uh, definitely, uh, I think, a hit for, for Brianne's first one. Uh, you know, you, you, you seem to have a, a, a ton of uh, flexibility in your jaw there, uh, which is a new development. Can you walk us through what you've been dealing with the past several weeks? So it's embarrassing, and I'll just, I'll just out myself. Uh, you know, I um, was riding a scooter. I was out in L.A. the week before the, before the Rams Super Bowl game. I, w- I was going to come back for the Super Bowl game. I was going to go because I spent all that money buying the tickets. But the week before I was in L.A., seeing family, I, was, I decided to take a bird scooter. Okay, from my cousin's house to my mom's house. 
It's five blocks, Neil. Five blocks. All right. And I said, you know what? I'm smart. I'm not going to ride on the street. I'm going to ride on the sidewalk so I'm safe. Turns out that was the worst decision ever. Because in LA, like most places, they have those rumble strips that protect blind people, right? Those big bumps, right? And of course, here I go, just not paying attention, you know, like looking around, whatever. Who knows what I was doing? Hit the rumble strips. I go down. Apparently, the deal on these scooters is normally you put your hands out to protect yourself. When a scooter, you know, a scooter, you grab the grips tighter. So your face takes the brunt of the blow. Broke my jaw, UCLA, ER, blood everywhere, the whole deal. Had my jaw wired shut for six weeks, Neil, like Kanye. I'm not like Kanye in the other ways, but like, like Kanye in that way. But so now I'm coming back. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make my pivot like he did from producer to MC after his jaw wiring, getting wired shut. So more to come, but I'm thrilled to be able to eat. I lost 15 pounds. Neil, this is not the weight loss program anybody wants, but hey, man, I'm looking good. People are asking me like, hey, are you going to sue Bert? And I'm like, sue for what? Because I'm an idiot? Like, I can't sue them for my own stupidity. No, I'm not going to sue them. Oh my God. Well, that is, that is terrible. I actually, I fell off my bike in uh, 2020 and was in a cast for six months and needed oh surgery, God. tore two ligaments and dislocated a bone. Well, thank you, Jamil. And I have to know, is this your first public appearance since the jaw was, since your jaw was unwired or? So, so I'm sorry to say I've done some TV, but this is my first awesome podcast and I'm thrilled to be here with you guys. And what a, what an honor. Thank you for having me. And I'm so glad I can do it without talking like I'm a jaw clutch like I was for the last six weeks. Yeah, well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, guys. This was great. Thank you all. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thanks again for listening to Season 2 of the Plugged In Podcast. New episodes will be available on Tuesdays at noon Eastern Time. You can also keep up with all things energy by following the Washington Examiner on all of our social media channels and subscribing to the Daily on Energy newsletter written by yours truly, Jeremy Beeman.